This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today we have author of The Mosaic, Daniel Levin. Daniel Levin walked away from an opportunity to run a billion-dollar business to hitchhike around the world to find happiness and inner peace. He studied in a seminary five years and left one day before becoming a rabbi, and he has lived as a monk in a monastery for 10 years. As director of business development, he grew Hay House from $3 million a year in sales to $100 million a year in revenue. Levin is a rare blend of businessman and mystic who sees what others do not see. It has been this one quality more than any other that has thrown him into some of the most exclusive boardrooms to help companies innovate new ways of finding solutions when the old ways stop working. He is the author of The Mosaic, a life-changing fable that invites people to listen to those who others do not hear and to see the situations in their life differently. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Daniel Levin. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you on here. You know, why don't we start off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, how many months or years do you have? <laughs> I, 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 it seems like I, I always wished I had a regular normal life like most people. I wished I lived three blocks from my parents' house. I wish I entered into my father's business. I wish I had just kept the same friends that I grew up with and knew them for all these years. But that was never my journey, Giancarlo. My parents <laughs> passed away when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And so it propelled me on a search, which I write about in my book, The Mosaic, to find where my parents went. Because when my parents passed away, as I write about in the mosaic, it's a story about a boy who loses his parents two years apart on the same day. Wow. And Mo asks the adults where his parents are, and they tell him they're at a place called heaven. So he sets out in search of the place called heaven. And what I realized is in my life, I have, I've had the amazing, amazing opportunity to sit with the richest people in the world, not in their lecture halls listening to them speak, but at their dining room tables. I've had the opportunity to meet their parents and to play on the floor with their kids. I've had the opportunity to sit in, in, in living rooms with some of the most inspired people in the world, people who, who, when they speak, millions of people listen to them. And I've had also had the opportunity to sit on street corners with the poorest of the poor. Hmm. And what I've realized is no matter how much money they had or didn't have, no matter what religion they practiced or didn't practice, no matter what color their skin or what border they lived behind or what, or what uh, language they spoke, every single one of them wanted the same thing. They wanted to be loved and accepted. They wanted to be listened to and heard. And they wanted to be acknowledged and validated. Right. And when I realized that, it completely uprooted the, what I thought was very purposeful life that I had been living before. Hmm. 
And I decided from that moment on, that's what I was going to do with my life. I was just going to hold the space for people to be loved and expect, accepted, listened to and heard and acknowledged and validated. So you said you lost your parents when you were a kid. How old are we talking? Um, my, dad, my dad was my hero. And he passed away when I was 13 years old. Uh, sorry to hear that. And my mom passed away two years later. He died making love to my mom. A great way for him to die. A <laughs> terrible way for my mom to have him die. Right. But they were that connected that my mom literally died. Um, this was 50 years ago. Okay. So cancer was just being discovered. Cancer was just being found out about. Mm -hmm. And the adults told us when my mom was diagnosed with cancer to not even tell her because it had had a stigma on it that if you have cancer, you're going to die. And so they just, they didn't want us to say anything and they didn't say anything, but the doctors told us we're going to do this treatment of cobalt. And if this cobalt treatment works, she'll be alive. If it doesn't, she'll be dead in six months. But she never heard that. We were the only ones that heard that. We never said anything to her. Six months to the day they told us that statement, she was gone. And, wow. that six, and that six-month period just happened to be the exact same day, the exact same time that my dad passed away. Hmm. And, we, and I had seen in a little journal that I don't even know where it is anymore, but I remember coming to the hospital and sitting right next to her when she had passed and seeing her journal that she had written in, like a little pad that she was writing notes in. And it said, July 2nd, just a couple more days now, Al, I'll be with you. Wow. And she knew that she, she died not of cancer, but of heartbreak. Cancer was the disease that took her, but she was heartbroken because he, he, she and he were completely connected and, she, and they loved each other so much that she couldn't bear to live life. Even though she loved us, the connection to him was so strong, she couldn't bear to not be around him. Wow. So this, this happened when you were 15 by the time you lo lose your mom then? Yes. Where do you go at that point? So I thought that I was going to go live with my, with my closest friends and become a part of his family. And, and uh, they were willing to take me in. My, I have a brother, my, one of my closest friends. Um, his, his parents loved my brother and, was, and they were going to take him in. And we were going to be you know, a few miles from each other uh, growing up. My brother was 19 at that point, gone away. To, he was in college. But my mother had a sister who lived in the Midwest. We lived in the East Coast. And again, 50 years ago, internet wasn't available. Internet, nobody knew what the internet was. Mm -hmm. These kind of conversations we're having right now were, were, were put on the pages of a Dick Tracy watch. Right. Where you could actually, you know, right. And you could actually look at the watch and see somebody. So these, these weren't real, these weren't real. Um, and so we didn't know them very well. Uh, but they contacted us and said, we're going to come and get you and you're going to come, you're going to come to the Midwest and live with us. Okay. And we, and everybody was a little hesitant, but it was the right thing to do. My mother's husband had become a household name around the world. And so they had all the wherewithal that they needed to raise us. We just didn't have much of a relationship with them because mm -hmm. we never saw them. Um, and so I went to live with my aunt and uncle. Even more than the distance between the East Coast and the Midwest was the distance of the lifestyle of a lower middle class family that we were. 
my dad died with a mountain full of debt and one black suit because he wanted to get us everything we needed, everything we wanted, because he wanted us to be like everybody else and not admit to the fact that he couldn't do that for us or provide that for us. Mm. So he had, he died with a mountain full of debt and a black suit. And suddenly I went from that family who was scraping really to have what, anything it wanted to a fam to an, one of the elite families in the world that had everything in the world, everything the world would ever desire. Now, elite and, families um, in the world, you, you said uh, uh, your uncle was well-known at the time? Yeah, he was a businessman. Okay. And he had started a company that was worldwide. And people and, and uh, I mentioned their, them on one podcast, and my aunt said to me, um, please don't ever do that. You're using us to promote you. <laughs> and I said, I said no, I, 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 the only way I would be using that is, to show what an idiot I was because what happened is he didn't it was in it was in the years 50 years ago and thank god this has changed but 50 years ago men didn't think about giving their businesses over to their daughters he had mm. three very intelligent daughters or at least two of the three were I mean, you know they're two of the three, they were at least very capable of doing the business that he had and but it was unheard of to give your business to a woman then Thank God now we look at that and we, we wonder, have we changed much? But when you see what, where we are today, it's, it, that's not unthinkable anymore. That's very doable. Sure. Um, so he said to me when, when I arrived there, he said, I'm going to watch you for, for the next little while and I want to see who you are. And I said, okay, you know what? You do anything you want. I'm, thank you so much. I'm just honored, you know, thankful that you've brought us in and given us this opportunity. And about a month and a half into it, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to change your life today. And I said, really, what are you going to do? He said, uh, let's go out to lunch. And at lunch, he laid out for me his game plan. And he told me, I've been watching you. And he said, you have an amazing, you have some amazing qualities in you that will either propel you to the front of anything you do or will, or will totally destroy your life. Either or. Either or. And, and no place in between. And I think that you have the ability with some mentoring to um, start at the bottom of my business and work your way all the way up to the top. So today, I'm going to tell you that tomorrow you're going to start pushing a broom in my, com in my company. You're going to go to school. You're going to, and after school, you're going to come to the office. You're going to start cleaning up. You're going to be like a janitor there. And we're going to start you at the bottom and you work. And I want to see how far you progress on your own to learn through the systems of going from the bottom to the top. But everywhere along the line, wherever you stop, I will lift you up because I will help you. And I will, I will, I will show you how to get to the next step and I'll show you what needs to be done and we'll, and, and I'll help you to do it. You're and, a teenager at this point. 15 years old. Oh, so right. As soon as you move, he's like having this conversation with you. A, a month and a half after I was there. He's wow. he, that's, that's how, that's how he was. Like he saw something, he wanted it. He went after it. Hmm. And so I said, he said, what do you think? And I said, um, what an honor that you would look at me and see that in me, but you're a brilliant, wise man. And it's taken you a month and a half to see me and to see if I have what's, what, you, what you saw. If I had something in me that you saw that would be 
what you need, what you could mold and shape into what you want me to be. I'm a kid. I'm a naive, innocent kid. I know nothing about you. I know nothing about this life that you're living. I would like to take a year and watch you. And I'll tell you in a year what I want to do. And he said, okay, do you realize, Danny, that 99.9999999, say nine until you, you almost drop dead. Percent of the people would have said, why wait till tomorrow? Let me, let's go, let's go right now after lunch and give me the broom. Right. And I said, just our rotten luck that I happened to be the point. Oh, 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 say, oh, you're almost dead. And then say one. Um, but, but I can't, I can't give you my commitment to do something that I don't know that I want to do. I need to see what it is that you're offering me. That's a lot I mean, of foresight to have for, for a teenager. I mean, you, you sound like you had a bit of wisdom there as a 15 year old. I mean, you might've been naive, but to even say that, I think, uh, shows some, some maturity there. It, it might be that you're picking up on the maturity of who I am now as a human being. I think then it was a little bit rebellious. I think that it was a little <laughs> bit, you know, it was a little bit like, who the hell are you to say anything to me? You know, like, I, I mean, I just lost my parents. I was heartbroken. Right. And, and my goal in life at that point in time wasn't how do I assess uh, empires? My goal in life was how do I put myself together? How do I find the love that I just lost? How do I find this unconditional feeling that I, of, of being loved no matter who I was? And I wasn't, I don't think I was feeling it there as much as this offer would seem like it's, a, it's the most loving offer it could be. And it was for them. That was the, there is nothing that could show their love for me more than, than my uncle saying to me, we would like to give you the opportunity. I'm going to give you the opportunity to take this business over. And in 15 years, when I semi-retire, you will sit in my seat and run the company. And I understand for him to say to me, you know, it's for me to say to him, well, I don't know. Let me watch you for a year. I mean, it, it was like the ultimate gift of love. And right. me looking at him and saying, really, I don't know if that's what I want or not, you know? And I see it with my stepchild right now. Um, my wife passed away oh, oh, some years ago, and I remarried about seven years ago, and we have an 18-year-old boy. Brilliant guy. But school and he do not live in the same arena. He, he's a square peg that they're trying to put into a round hole. Sure. And so he just came to us and he said, I don't think I'm, gonna, like I'm, going, to, I'm going to junior college right now. It just isn't what I want to do. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to go out and start a business. And for his mom to say, uh, you know, okay, don't, you can do that rather than this education, 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 education thing that we've been. And I still see my hesitations. I see, I see my uncle. I've become my uncle in my stepson's life, mm -hmm. you know, not quite as, as rigid as my uncle, but like, what's your plan? What's your thing? How are you going to do this? How is it going to work? You know, what do you, what do you like? I don't want you to just sit around and play computer games all day or, or play skateboard or, you know, just mess around, you know, like I want to see a strategy. And I just look back and it was just, this is all just happened in the last couple of days. So I just look back on me at that age. By 18, I had finished two years of college. Mm -hmm. I dropped out of college and I decided I was going to hitchhike around the world to uh, find happiness and inner peace. So does that mean that after the year passed, 
you told your uncle you didn't want it. Uh, yes. And, okay. you know, we, we went out to lunch and um, he said to me, do you have an answer to my question? And being the young, arrogant pug that I was, I said, you know, you have to ask a question before I can give you an answer. <laughs> and in, in telling the story here, it's a year, a year doesn't seem like a long time because I just told you that. In, in, but to a 15 year old kid, a year is a long time. It's the one sixteenth of your life, you know, I was 16 <laughs> now. And, and so he said, oh, so did you forget the question I asked you a year ago that you told me you would answer today? I said, no, I forgot that today and this moment was the exact moment that that was due. But I have an, I think I have an answer to your question. And he said, so what is it? I said, well, it's going to come in the form of three questions. And he said, okay, that's not, that's not, that's not helpful, really. Like, what, what are your questions? I said to him, do you remember on your, on your birthday, the house was full. We must have had 400, 450 people in the house. And I remember coming up to you and thinking, how good this must feel to have 450 friends come to celebrate you and have fun with you on your birthday. How, how special you must feel as an individual to have that sort, of, that sort of admiration from the people who love you to come here and spend the day with you and celebrate your birthday. I said, do you remember what you said to me? He said, yes, I do. Do you, let me hear if you remember what I said to you. I said, this is what I think you said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, not word for word, but I'm going to paraphrase it. You basically said to me, Danny, these people are not my friends. If I had no money, they wouldn't be here. They're here because I have a lot of money. Mm. And I said, is that, is that what you said? He said, word for word. <laughs> so I said to him, so my first question is, why would you like to give me that gift? <laughs> Why would you want me to not know if people like me for me or just because of what they can get from me? So he said, okay, that's not a, that's not a great um, start. What's your second question? I said, do you remember we were sitting around the dinner table and your daughters were starting to date? Do you remember what you said to them? You said to them, nobody gives a darn about who you are or what you are. They hear your last name, and the only reason these boys are interested in you are because of your last name. They want what you have. I said, is that pretty close to what you said? He said, ah, spot on. <laughs> I said, so let's just say that I could figure out from a human personal level how to have friends that would like me and for who I was and not for what I had. I doubt that I'll be able to do it because you're smarter, you're wise, you're brilliant. You, you, you haven't been able to do it. So why would I be able to do it? But let's mm -hmm. just say for the time being, I could do that. Tell me, why would you want to give my children the gift that you're giving me right now? That they would not, they wouldn't even know if the person that they were falling romantically in love with was in love with them or just using them for their last name or what they could give them. Mm -hmm. So he said, okay, this doesn't look like it's going very well. <laughs> he said, what's your third question? I said, you're giving me a brilliant opportunity to be able to start at the bottom. I love that. That would be exactly the way I would do it. Because so many people feel entitled and come right in and sit at a, at a seat that they have no idea what's going on. You're giving me the, the possibility to learn your company from the bottom, from the janitor level up to the CEO level. What a, what a brilliant thing to do. 
I imagine I'm going to see things along that journey that could be fixed and changed. I imagine I'm going to see people dealt with in ways that we wouldn't really want to deal with them that way if we saw it, if we were right in front of them. I'm going to imagine we're going to be able to see the way we could treat situations and people differently that would make them feel more like a culture and a, and a company and, a, and, and, and that would make the company even stronger and better. I imagine we're going to see things that are just quite frankly broken and need to be fixed. Would you give me the opportunity to do that when I'm sitting in your seat? I said, do you remember what you said? He said, let me hear what you think I said. I said, you leaned back in your chair and you sort of chuckled and you went, huh, Danny, why would you fix something that's not broken? Mm. How many billion dollar companies have you started? And I said, so even if I could understand that people liked me for who I was, not for what I had, even if I could give that lesson over to my children, you see, I really wouldn't be able to do much because it would always be in your name, not in mine. Right. Why would you want to give me that gift? And he said, I said, so do we think we have an answer now? And he said, he said, I respect your mind. Remember what I said to you, your mind is brilliant. I respect the way you look at things. Remember what I said to you, it will either cause you to succeed incredibly or, or fail miserably. I think you're making a decision today that will fail, that will make your life fail miserably. Mm. I said, I guess I have to just do that. I can't, I can never live your life. I have to live mine. And I guess I would rather live my life and fail miserably as me than try and succeed as you and succeed, but under the guise of trying to be you, not me, because that wouldn't really be mine. Did you so regret said, it you at know, that moment? Not at all. There've been moments, there've been moments between then and then that I did, you know, <laughs> because, because I think about what I, I could have done. I think about what would, you know, what I would have, what would have been at my disposal to be able to do the things that I do now mm -hmm. with, with, you know, millions and billions of dollars of funding behind me. And as much as I look to the money that I could have had, I also love the life that I've, I've lived. I've loved going into every pothole that I've gone into. I've loved standing on every mountaintop that I've been in. And when I've told you I've sat with the richest people in the world, I have because mm -hmm. of those opportunities. When I tell you I've sat on street corners with the poorest of the poor, I have because of those opportunities. And sometimes those street corners were one block away from the neighborhood that I was about to live in. I never did, but I could have easily. Mm. And, and, in the same way I love that my uncle would have started me from the janitor level up. I love that the creator of my life started me from the street corner to the, to the boardroom as well, because my life has been a reflection of that life, hmm. all with this sense, as I wrote about in the mosaic, of looking for that place called heaven, that place for me that was heaven. Well, this is a good place to segue your spiritual journey because i know uh that's some interesting uh stuff there too why don't you talk about that so in this search what happened is i went to school when i left my uncle's i was pretty much excommunicated um 
Wow. And I understand why, because they they had given me everything they could give me. They thought, what what you know, the, you you turned your back on the most beautiful gift we could we could give you. We were giving you ourselves and our company and our life, and you turned your back on it. We don't we don't want anything to do with you. To their credit, they couldn't. They said they were going to excommunicate me, but all along the way, they tried to help me. At least some in the early years, <laughs> they tried to do things to get my my head back on straight. I went to college. I studied two years in psychology. I took all the courses that I would need for an undergraduate psychology degree in two years. And I realized that that, that didn't have the answers to the questions I was looking for. Mm. And so I decided to put my thumb out on the road and hitchhike around the world. And I thought maybe in the, in the opportunity to, to meet people, all different types of people, people that I'd never met in all different countries and all different cultures that I would find something that would be a common denominator of what I was looking for. And I found a lot. I, I loved that life, but it wasn't the life that I could live for too long. I did it for two and a half years. I was going en route to India and I um, decided, I was traveling with some girls and they said, um, it's getting cold. Why don't we're in Israel? Why don't we go to a kibbutz and and stay in a kibbutz for for the winter? They'll they'll feed us. They'll clothe us. They'll house us, and we won't have to go. You know, we won't be freezing on a street corner here. Mm-hmm. And so I said, that's a great idea. Well, three days before we were going to go, Israel had moved its troops up to the Syrian border, and it looked like Syria and Israel were going to go to war. Mm. And the girls, the girls said to me, we're not going to Israel. This is crazy now. I mean, we're not going to go to a country at war. And I said, gosh, I've never been in a country at war. What a beautiful experience <laughs> to have. And so I got on the plane and I went to Israel. And I went up to a kibbutz not far from the Golan Heights, not in, in the north of Israel, because I wanted to be right where the action was happening. Um, it turns out they did not go to war. I remember driving on a tractor in a kibbutz, plowing a field. And I had never heard a sonic boom because in America, we have to go, the planes have to go above a certain height so that you don't hear the sonic boom when they mm. pass the speed of sound. In Israel, they don't have that. So I'm sitting on the tractor and I hear this sonic boom and it's like an explosion. And I jumped off the tractor and went underneath the tractor and everybody that I was working with started laughing and laughing. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? I said, well, there was just an explosion. We got to protect ourselves. They said, idiot, that was a sonic boom. That was just... <laughs> So, so much for my courage and bravery in in the midst of a war. Um, I stayed there for a little while, and I love the communal lifestyle that they have of of eating together, being together, working together, living together. But I really miss the spirituality of what I was looking for. Mm. And so I decided to go to Jerusalem and sit at the Western Wall, the holy, the holiest part of Judaism, the remnants. It was a retaining wall for the old, for the temple that used to be there. And it's all that's left of the majestic temple of the Jewish people. And people go there and pray. And so I, it was the high holidays. And I decided I was going to go and spend Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, at the Western Wall, just sitting in meditation. Hmm. And it was a hot day, and you don't eat or you don't drink. And so I'm sitting there sweating, you know, meditating at this Western wall while all these people are yelling and, you know, fanatic. They're, they pray, they're praying loud and, and wailing. And, and I sat there the whole day. And as the, as the day was ending, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, where are you going to go to break the fast? I notice you're alone here. 
And I said, I'm, I am staying with a friend. I'm going to go there. And they said, why don't you come with us? And it was a yeshiva. It was a, a, a you know, a seminary boy. Mm. And, um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm really not interested. I'm really looking for this rabbi that I read about. They said he's a holy man. He's up all night. For, he likes people to visit him between two and six in the morning. Have you ever heard of this man? And they said, yeah, he's right down the block from us. His, his place is just a block away from us. So why don't you come and have lunch, dinner with us? And then you can go and see him afterwards. And I said, okay, deal. So they took me to, his, to, to their place. We had dinner. And then around one o'clock in the morning, that I left there around 10 because they were, they all had to go, you know, they were, and so between 10 and one, I sort of got to, I sort of wandered around on my own, sat on my own, wondered what I was going to do. At about one o'clock, I went to the, to the, to the place where the, this, they showed me this rabbi was at. And I, they opened the door and I walked in and I was met by someone who took me into the room where the rabbi was. He was sitting with guys that make my beard look like that. You know, I haven't shaved in a day rather than, you know. Right. Uh, 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 and they were dead. Their beards were down to their waist and they were sitting studying over a book, the, the oral law, the Talmud. And I don't know if you've ever had this moment happen. Have you ever had your, a moment where your arm has gone pins and needles? Sure and you can't move it and you literally have to pick it up with your other arm and move it. Mm -hmm. That happened to my entire body. Wow. That's weird. And, <laughs> and I, it was, it was, it was really weird. I couldn't move past the portal of the door. And again, this was before computers and before the idea of downloading. But now looking back, I felt like he was downloading everything about me. He was, so he was freezing me in my tracks, <laughs> downloading me. My computer system wasn't working to get me to the chair. And, and he was just put, emptying everything out of me that, I was, that was within me. And this went on for about three to five minutes, which is, that's a long period of time to be standing at a door trying to make your way to a seat. Right. I mean, you think it doesn't sound like much. It's three to five minutes, but that's a long time. And finally, he looked at me, and I felt like this man knew me better than anybody that I'd ever known hmm. in three to five minutes. And finally, he looked at me, and he said, won't you come and sit down? And I laughed internally because I'd been trying to get to that chair the whole time <laughs> I was standing there. And so you know how a horse, before a horse race, is all geared up and the gate opens and it just propels out? Well, that's what I did at that door. I just like lunged and the field was not there preventing me anymore. So I lunged and he looked at me like, that's a little strange way to get to the chair. Like, you know, <laughs> so I already felt like an idiot. <laughs> we sat and we spoke. And he asked me, where I'd been, how long I'd been in Israel, what I had seen, where I was staying. And I thought, oh my God, this is the arrogance that I had as a kid. I'm sitting with this holy man that I just had this amazing experience with. And I'm trying to control the way he asked me his questions. <laughs> and I said to him, I'm sorry, sir. Like, why are you asking me these stupid questions? Do you realize, I mean, you know me better than any person in the whole world. I've come here to get a blessing to go to India. And I don't understand why you're asking me where I've been, what I've been, how long I've been here. I mean, what's, pardon me, they're sort of stupid questions. And he looked at me and in Hebrew, he said, get out of this office. 
And I said, I'm sorry, I'm, my Hebrew must not be very good because I don't think I understood what you're saying. And he said, how's your English? Get out of this office. You're, leave. I looked at him and I said, I, I'm not going to do that. I came, here, I came here to get a blessing. This is not the blessing I thought I was going to get. I'm, go I'm going tomorrow to India and I really can't not be thrown out of the office of a holy man. That's not a good way to start this trip off. He said, if you don't leave, I'm going to leave. And he and the six guys at the table with him got up and walked out of the room. Now I'm sitting there. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And I'm, nobody's there. I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea where I'm going. And it's empty. Three o'clock comes, nothing changes. Four o'clock comes, nothing changes. Five o'clock comes, nothing changes. 5.20, the sun's just starting to come, light's starting to come. And in Judaism, it takes 10 people to say certain prayers in the morning and afternoon and evening. Mm. So someone peeks into the room and says to me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, but I don't know any of the prayers. I said, just shut up. It doesn't matter. Just come and sit here. We need a 10th person. So I go into the room where they're praying. And I see one of the 10 people is the Rebbe. So I think, okay, now he owes me one. So I sit through his prayer, the prayers with him. And I go back to the room and I say to somebody, will you tell somebody, will you tell the Rebbe somebody's here to see him? So he doesn't know it's me. He turns around, he comes, he comes to the room and he sees me. He walks in, he takes a step in, he looks, sees me. He take, turns around and starts walking out. I said, you can't do that, stop. And he looks at me like, who the hell are you, kid? <laughs> like, I threw you out of here once. Do I, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you. And I said, you're a teacher. I'm a student. I've come to you to learn. You have an obligation to tell me what you're trying to say to me. And so he said, okay, let me give it a shot. You say you've seen Israel north, south, east, and west. You say you've been here nine months. You say you've seen everything there is to see. I'm telling you, you haven't seen a thing because you don't know how to see. You'll go to India tomorrow. You'll have the same thing happen. You'll be there however long you'll be there. You'll see it from top to bottom. You won't see a thing because you don't know how to see. If you want to learn how to see, come back tomorrow. I said, I'm flying tomorrow to Turkey and I'm going overland from Turkey to India. I have a non-refundable ticket. I can't come back tomorrow. He said, that's why I threw you out of the office. Get out of here. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. Let me ask you one thing. Did you go back or did you fly to Turkey? Yes. <laughs> so the, the short answer to an already way too long story <laughs> is that uh, the woman at the counter pull, pulled me out of line and said, come here. And they brought me behind. In Israel, the, the uh, security 
before you get on a plane is, you know, it makes what we do in America almost feel like it's a kindergarten. Hmm. And they pulled me out of the back of the line of a long line of people because I had gotten there late because of this situation. And she pulled me into the back room and had me talk to her supervisor. Hmm. And the supervisor said, Give, what, what, do you, what is it you want? And I said, that's sort of a long story. I have a non-refundable ticket. I just met this guy. She said, show me the ticket. I showed her the ticket. She said, I cannot. I actually took it back to her supervisor. She said, there's nothing I can do. I can't refund this ticket. But she said, last night I had a dream. I saw the Rebbe you're talking about. I never want to see him again. He said to me that if I saw you here amongst the cameras, to pull you out of line and make sure you do not get on the plane and go to where you're going, that you, you belong here and you need to come back Whoa. and to do whatever I needed to do to make this happen. I do not want to ever see him again, nor do I ever want to see you again. I'm going to go, I'm going to give you the $400, the, co the cost of this ticket out of my own wallet. Don't tell anybody this happened. It's not, it's not possible. We never do this. Just get the hell out of here. So I'd been thrown, and in less than 24 hours, I'd been thrown out of two places. <laughs> and I realized I, I got to go back. So I went back and sat with him for five years. Wow. Which is not quite exactly the story, but it's close. Um, after five years of being in, in, a, in a, and being one day away from being ordained as an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem, Israel, I left before I got my ordination hmm. because there were just too many things in it that I didn't believe. I okay. saw too much perhaps now in the, in this, in this, in continuation of the story, I saw too much in the practice that I was practicing to be able to stay there and do what people who couldn't see did just because out of obligation. His question to me was, why were you born Jewish? Were you born Jewish to go to India and become a Hindu? Hmm. I don't think, I don't think <laughs> so. And I answered him to say, because I was born, I believe I was born Jewish to end the dogma of the belief system of one person's better, one group is better than another group. And we're the only ones that know and they don't know. I just, I can't put up with that. I can't, I can't live with that reality. I, I, I can never represent you in that. So I could get ordained and have that as a credential in my pocket to use, but I would be misusing, I would be using that credential not in the way you intended me to. And in the integrity of my heart, I can't get ordained in your name and not practice the way you would practice. So I have to leave. I'm seeing a pattern here. It's this very similar yes. conversation that you had very with your similar. uncle. <laughs> very similar. And if, you, if, if we had, you know, thousands of more years, that same pattern existed because there was something people always saw in me that had potential to help them create what they wanted to create. Mm. I sat in college with a man who, who, trained, who taught me in college. He started the movement, he started organizational psychology. Mm. Before him, psychology was done with individuals on a couch with psychologists. He said, well, if the, the nature of a company is like an individual, we can go into a company and we can figure out the psychology of a company. And he said to me, I want you to be the one that I hand this. So we're going to start it together. I want you to do it with me. I want to, I want to train you. I want to give it over to you. And I, and I, I just said, it's not mine. It's not my heaven. What I was looking for my whole life was that place of unconditional love that my mom and dad had for me. Hmm. 
that if you're a parent, you know the feeling. You just have it for your kids. It's not something you have to learn. Mm-hmm. You just have it. You have, you have it. it. It's born in the package of the, of, the, of the child. When you lost your parents, you lost that, basically. You, you lost anybody yeah. to give you that unconditional love. There was nobody to replace that. Is that fair to say? That, yes. That's what I thought. Okay. That's what I thought. And, and what I realized over the course of time is the heaven and the mosaic really gave this to me. Because as Mo was walking around looking for heaven, the people he found were not the clergy and the, and the swamis and the gurus and the Aborigines elders and the medicine women. They were the common ordinary people. They were the road worker and the trash man, the blind man and the homeless guy. They were the gardener and the juice man and the waitress and, you know, a numerous, uh, an assortment of common ordinary people. And he wondered, why am I meeting these people? What are these people going to show me about heaven? But Giancarlo, in every single case, when he sat with them and he listened to them tell them their stories, he realized the people he was seeing were not at all the people that they were. They were so much more than he had seen. And he realized, just like the Rebbe had told him earlier, he didn't know how to see. Because he wasn't seeing what was actually there. He was seeing himself. He was, and, and he wondered, is there a way that I can get myself out of the picture? You know, they have these dating apps now on, uh, where you swipe right or you swipe right. left. <laughs> so, right. so would there be a way that I could swipe myself right? and get myself out of the picture. And if so, what would the world look like without my perception of it, coloring it? What was actually there for me to see? Certainly I didn't see it in the people that I was meeting and I thought I was very perceptive, but what I saw was not who they were. They were something so much more than what I saw. And it made me wonder, what would I see if I could see the world without me? Do I see anything correctly? And in that moment in the mosaic, he looks to his right and he sees a monk unzipping the sky and inviting him through the, through the crease of the sky, the unzippered sky, it's beautiful. into a parallel reality where he meets the wise one who's the keeper of the mosaic. And the keeper of the mosaic is moving all of these pieces around. So the mosaic and, is, is really a metaphor for your life journey. Is that safe to say? Yes, I, it, it is a metaphor of my life journey and it's a metaphor of life's journey itself because I think all of us go on this journey to find wholeness again. What I saw in that moment where the, where I, the wise one sat with me in this parallel reality was he tapped me on the head like that and I had an experience of everything being one where I didn't know what body I was in, what time I was was in what space I was in, where the where the pain of the world I felt and the joy of the world I felt, and it was all that same exact moment until I went, until I sat and I said, "Wow, this is amazing. I wonder I wonder if this is what I'll feel the rest of my life." Hmm. And in the mosaic, he wakes up on a street corner, sitting next to the street artist who's who has broken pieces all around him, and is making mosaics. And the street artist says to him, oh, oh, I see, welcome. 
he said, when, what do you see when you see all these broken pieces? Most people just see a lot of broken pieces. What do you see when you look at them? And Mo says, I have to admit, I see broken pieces too. He said, oh, so do you forget where you just came from? And he said, well, I didn't know that I could share that with you where I just came from. I didn't know if you would know about that. He said, I've been waiting for you a long time. Most people look at something that is whole and see broken. What I want you to see is the wholeness of everything. Mm. These broken pieces have tell amazing stories. And when we put them together, they create something that is so much more beautiful than any of the individual pieces could ever tell. Because they create this mosaic, which is completely whole. And Beautiful. what would happen if we could actually see the wholeness of this world rather than the brokenness of this world? I was always a storyteller. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I was always a writer. I always loved the idea of, you know, I worked for a company called Hay House, which is the premier self-help publishing company in the world now. Mm -hmm. When I, when I came, they were doing about $3 million a year. They had published a, a woman by the name of Louise Hay. She was the founder of the company, and she had an amazing story. She was told she was diagnosed with cancer and told she had months to, month, two months to live. She came back six weeks later for a checkup, and the doctor was amazed to see the way she looked and said, we gotta, we're going to do a scan of you and see what's going on. And he took her into the office and he said, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you, have, you don't have cancer. You, there's no cancer in your body right now. And she said, why would you be sorry to tell me that? That's fabulous. He, was, <laughs> he said, well, six weeks ago, I told you you were going to die in two months. She said, so let's get those scans. And now that we know that I don't have it, let's look at those scans and tell me what you see now. He said, ma'am, you had full-blown cancer. I told you two months, but that was a gift. You should have been dead in four weeks. This cancer was all over your body. I don't, and now it's nowhere in your body. I don't know what to tell you. Whatever, all I can tell you is whatever you're doing, just continue to do it. <laughs> and so she started to work with people around the thoughts that we have create the realities that we live. Mm. And she showed where certain thought patterns created certain illnesses in the body. Hmm. Um, huge moment for me also to be working with them. But that, she was a New York Times bestselling book. Um, but that was really the only book that they published. They, they, were, they were a boutique publisher of her, of her books and items. When I came, I said, well, why don't we just grow this out? So in 10 years' time, we grew it together from $3 million to a $100 million company. Hmm. And the whole idea of it was that a thought can change your life. Wow. And when I realized what my whole life had been about, it was about a perception can change your life. For me, that heaven now that I was seeking wasn't someplace with a, where a guy with a much better beard and better looking than I was sitting on a throne with a big G on a sweatshirt <laughs> um, and letting people in and, and, or, or pushing people out. What it was for me, what I realized was it's that moment where there is a perceptual shift where the way we've always seen something suddenly becomes, we see it anew where suddenly what always looked like it was one thing, now we see differently. And if you look at the world we live in, this is a moment more than any other that we could use those perceptual shifts. Because what happens now is, is we're, we're uh, intoxicated with like-mindedness. Mm. 
Mm. We, we sit in like-minded silos and our silos are getting bigger and stronger because we want to be more powerful and we want to show up and we want to have impact in the world. And so we find people that think like us and feel like us and we gather together with them. But innovation doesn't happen from those silos of like-mindedness. And we were never created to have silos at all. And what's happening is our silo of like-mindedness is becoming further and further away from another silo of like-mindedness. And what, what was meant to bring us together with people that thought and felt and acted like us is now separating us from people who don't think and feel and act like us. And so my, my space in this world is to see what happens when we come across a person who thinks differently than we do. Mm. Do we, do we just continue to fight them and tell them they're wrong? Or do we become curious and incredibly, incredibly excited to say to them, how is it possible that we're looking at the same exact thing and I see it this way and you see it that way? Will you show me the way you see it? Will you just show me the, the what, and, and there are all these beautiful line drawings. One of the most popular is the, the old hag and the young socialite. That, you, that One way you look at it and you see it's an old hag, and the other way you look at it, you see it's a socialite, but it's exactly what's in the same picture, right? right? It's not like you switch pictures or you have to close your eyes. You, it's just some people see one and some people see the other, but like they're both right there. What you're focusing on. What you're focusing on. And so, that's, to me, that's exactly how the, we live this life. There are so many different ways to see what we're looking at, but we're stuck. What we see literally blocks us from seeing all the other possibilities of seeing what's there. And we believe now suddenly that we're right and, we're, and our way is the right way and our way is the only way. And everybody who doesn't see the old hag is wrong. <laughs> but they're looking at the same picture. And they see the young socialite and they're saying we're wrong for seeing the other. But it's the same picture. We're both right. There is no right and wrong. And that moment of perceptual shift where we suddenly do what the Rebbe told me all those years ago, I want to teach you how to see, where we actually see what's right in front of us rather than see only a part of what's in front of us. And I could be like that Rebbe right now who said, you've gone north, south, east, and west. You say you've seen so many things. You've started companies, you've built companies, you've grown companies, you've lost companies, you've done all these things. I don't believe you've seen a thing because you don't know how to see. I would never be that presumptuous because I'm not as wise as he was. <laughs> but I would ask the question, do you see? Are you able to see what you don't see? And what would happen for you if you were able to see that? There's a whole nother component of my life where I sat in meditation as I, I became a monk for 10 years. And I sat and practiced med and taught meditation for 20 years. But really, it's all the same story. The forms have changed. The, the things I was doing was different. And really, if I'm honest and, and, and humble enough to admit it and vulnerable enough to say it, looking back now, it could have happened in the offer that my uncle gave me if I were only able to see what I could see now. It's not like it wasn't there and it had to be here. I just couldn't see it there. So when I look back, I realize I had to take the path that I had to take to wake, open up my eyes to see. But what I needed to see was always in front of me all the time anyway. So that seems to be 
I guess, a mission of yours, right? Because your podcast and your book seem to kind of have the same theme, seeing, right? And seeing people deeper, taking a deeper look into people. So would you say you're, you're mission-driven that way? Yes. I, I think what, what happened for me, do I have time to tell you one more story? Go ahead. I was walking one day in the streets of San Diego and I saw a man sitting on a corner. I don't know what it's how to, how to say the word. It must be a word for it, but where the sidewalk meets the building that, that, that L that L that's mm -hmm. created there. I saw him sitting at the juncture of the sidewalk in the building, leaning up against the building. And he didn't, he didn't look like he was in a good way. And something just drew me over to sit, stand there and talk to him and, and go up to talk to him. And as I came up to him, he said, no, 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 get out of here. This is not, this is my corner. You can't have it. This, this is my home. <laughs> this is my corner. You can't have this corner. We, go away. Please don't come here. And I said, I'm sorry. There's not a chance in the world I'm going to do that. He said, but you can't. I'm, I'm here. And this is, I need to make money here. I'm, I, I, I support, I have to support a bunch of homeless people and I, I need to make money. And, I, and I, 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 you, if you're here, I'm not going to make any money. I said, how much money will you make in the next half an hour? He said, $5. I make $5 every half an hour, $10 an hour. And I need to do that. I, I, work, I, I, work, I work this corner 15 hours a day. I make $150 a, a day. And I use that money to take care of the people around me that can't, they don't make as much as I do. So you can't do it. You, you got to go away. I put my hand in my wallet and I saw I had $50 and I gave him $50. I said, this will cover the next half an hour for you, but keep your hat out there. We'll make more money than that also, I, I promise you. And he said, you're strange. You're weird. Okay. You, what, what's, what do you, what do you need? You can, you can come here. <laughs> so so I, I said, I just want to talk to you. He said, what's so important? What do you need from me? What is, what is it you want to know? What, what, like, what, why are you so crazy? What is it you want to, you know, want to know? I said, first of all, you see that I'm weird. Second of all, you think I'm crazy. You have great insight. <laughs> I said, I want to know who you are and what's going on. And we sat for about 45 minutes together. And I said to him at the end of that 45 minutes, I said, Corey, you sit on the street corner and you watch hundreds of people pass by you every day, maybe thousands. If you could stop them for one minute and gather them in front of you, what would you say to them? He said, Danny, that's very easy. I know exactly what I would say to him. I said, tell me, what, what would that be? He said, I would tell them to do what you're doing. Take 10 minutes out of the course of their life and go up to someone they don't know and ask them how they're doing. I said, first of all, I'm honored that you would say that, but like, why would you do that? Like, there's so many things you could have asked them for or told them about or given them insight into. Why would that be the thing you wanted? He said, Danny, you've told me a lot of stories. I appreciate you. I understand you, but I want to tell you a story now. I said, please. He said, a few months ago, I was sitting here and you have no idea how much I hate the life of a homeless person. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm embarrassed to be here. I take ridicule and pain and suffering. But what people do to me isn't as bad as what I do to myself. I, I'm so ashamed of myself that this is what I've become. And so as I sat in that shame, I try to get out of it by just talking to people when they come, when they come by and I try and engage them and, so, and, and, and ask them to help me. And one day this group of boys came running by and I thought, hi boys, how you doing? 
And I just engaged them and they came up to me and, and I thought we were going to sort of laugh together. And they started kicking and punching me and beating me up. And he said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know if I was going to survive, Danny. And as I laid there just in the pain of, of, of the beating that I had just taken, I closed my eyes and thought, I, like, what am I doing here? And I was woken up by a man who was urinating on me. And I looked at all, and all the money that I had in my, ba- in my hat was stolen. And people walked by and started to spit at me and, and yell at me. And they do this every single day. They come by and they kick me or punch me or yell at me or spit at me or, or urinate. I mean, they don't urinate on me. That, this was an exceptional day. And Danny, you don't know this, but the street right behind us, nobody goes on. It's a dark street. It's not lit up at night and people are scared to walk on that street. So nobody goes on it. They walk on this street right here. I decided that evening I was going to go to that street and I was going to take my life because no one would even know that I did it. And probably no one would even know that I was missing the rest of my life, the rest of the time that I was here. They would just be happy I wasn't here. Not two minutes after I had that thought, Danny, a man in a three-piece suit came up next, came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, how are you doing, brother? And I said, you don't want to know. This is not a good day, sir. Keep walking. This is not a good day. Just keep going. Please don't stop. Just keep walking. This is not, it's none of your business. Just keep going. You don't want to get involved in this. And the man looked at me and he said, there's no way I'm going to do that. And he sat down next to me and he put his arm around me. He said, tell me everything. He said, I don't know if it was because the man was wearing a three-piece suit and I thought he was important. Or if there was just something that happened in that moment. But suddenly... I started to cry. These huge crocodile-like tears started to fall down from my face. And he pulled me close to him and he had put my head on his shoulder and I was crying into his shoulder. And he said, tell me, it's okay, just cry. Tell me what's going on. He said, Danny, you know, it only took about 10 minutes for me to empty myself into this man. And what I saw in the time that I was sitting there talking to him, which was only 10 minutes, that at the end of those 10 minutes, I realized I can't kill myself now. Someone who was important, someone in a three-piece suit came up and thought enough about me to spend 10 minutes out of the course of his life to just check in with how I was doing. That man doesn't know it, but he saved my life that day. I prayed and prayed that he would come back so that I could tell him. I wanted to tell him that I was going to take my life that day and that he just had 10 minutes had saved it. Corey doesn't know this either, but there's something called the butterfly effect. When I heard that story, it inspired me so much that I realized that every, every talk that I give, every, every convention that I go to, every show that I'm on, every podcast that I do, every time I have an opportunity to speak to people in a boardroom, in a street, in a hospital, and wherever, I want to try and tell Corey's story and ask people to do what Corey asked them to do. Corey doesn't know it now, but millions of people have heard his story and millions of people have been given the opportunity to take 10 minutes out of the course of their lifetime and go up to someone they don't know and just sit with them and ask them how they're doing. We don't need to fix them, change them, help them, lift them up, do anything. But the power of that story has changed millions of people's lives and Corey doesn't even know it. What I would like to ask the listeners of this podcast to do is give honor to Corey's story. Find someone you don't know, either online or in person, and just ask them how they're doing. You don't have to be 
ordained. You don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be, uh, you know, anybody. You just have to have a heart that cares enough about another human being that doesn't ask, how are you, as a salutation. When they say, good, fine, great, you say, great. You just say, no, I really care about your brother or sister. I want to know how you're doing. We're going through a global pandemic right now. We're going through race, race relationships that are, you know, that are really hard. We're mm -hmm. going through women standing up and saying, I don't want to be treated the way you've been treating me. We're watching our institutions crumble. We're watching our, our government go in disarray. We're watching all sorts of things around the world. Chaos happening. How are you really doing? Are you really going to say good, fine, great? I don't think so. I'm interested in you and I really want to know. And that's what I do in my show conversations with strangers. I just ask people how they're doing. It's a beautiful way to, to, to end the show on that note. I think it's a uh, fantastic advice and something I'm going to take to heart as well. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It is my honor, Giancarlo. And thank you. People have to learn from you. Because the way you held the space here for me to be able to tell that story was really beautiful. And we need more people like you that can hold the space for people to tell their story. So thank you for the honor of being on your show. I appreciate it so much. I'm, of course, going to have your links and where people can buy the mosaic for themselves. If people wanted to follow you or even reach out to you, what's a good way to do that? They can get me through either of my websites. It's danielbrucelevin.com or themosaiconline.com. And the book is available in either of those places, but it's also on Amazon. It's also available as an audio book, so they can just hear it in three hours and 11 minutes. They can hear the whole story rather than having to sit with a book and read it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Really appreciated you coming on the show. My honor. Thank you again for having me. So that was my interview with Daniel Bruce Levin. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. All his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.